Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, everything's going well. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a real treat for you. We're going to have a roundtable discussion on evaluation and management of the Walsh B2 type glenoid. This is always a controversial topic, and so we've invited several experts who are nationally renowned on this subject. First, we have Dr. Patrick Denard from Southern Oregon Orthopedics. Pat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. Pleasure to be with you. Next, we have Dr. Brendan Patterson from the University of Iowa. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter and Rachel. Appreciate being on. And finally, we have Dr. Quinn Throckmorton from the Campbell Clinic in Memphis. Quinn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Appreciate uh, you guys having us on. All right, so let's talk pre-op evaluation first before we get into the nitty-gritty and treatment. So tell me, if you see a B2, are you always getting a CT before you do any surgery? Brendan, what do you think? Yeah, my standard of <clears throat> practice actually is to get a CT scan on on almost every shoulder um, arthroplasty I'm doing right now. And certainly for B2, I would I would get one even if that patient had a high quality MRI, I would still get a CT scan. Um, any other member of the panel think that you get an X-ray alone, that's okay. Is everyone getting CT scans? Pat, what do you think? Yeah, I think you need advanced imaging on everybody. Um, I'm in the camp though that if I do not see asymmetric deformity, uh, I'm a, I feel like in that case, if I have a really good axillary view, that's a caveat. It, what's going to change my plan is an MRI. So I'll get an MRI if I have like an A1 glenoid because I think you know I don't have a deformity to deal with. But a B2, 100% of the time, I would get a CT scan to assess that deformity. What do you think, Quinn? Is there ever a B2 where you're not getting a CT before you go to the operating room? For an uh, pretty much every every time. I would agree with that. I just want to point out what I what a sign of the times this is. When I when I first came out of uh, fellowship as a John Sperling disciple, I remember the first time I ever said in public that I was getting CT scans preoperatively for uh, for my patients before arthroplasty. Uh, I was actually questioned by the crowd if I was attempting to cure cancer. Uh, so. It's amazing how the, how the how the standard of care has changed so rapidly uh, in regarding to this pre-op imaging. It really has a lot to do with our ability to plan with some of the software that we have available these days. But I really want to uh, highlight Pat, uh, Pat's point because uh, we, we've looked at this and compared MRI to CT scan. It does turn out that even though you can't import an MRI into the proprietary software to do your planning, it is actually pretty reliable. It's equally reliable as a CT scan for evaluation of glenoid deformity. And it's actually a little bit more accurate for us in, uh, in assessment of glenoid version. So if I have one test that I have to get for a B2 and I can't get both, for instance, then, then, I would, then I'm with Patrick. I actually prefer uh, an MRI a good share of the time. What do you think, Brendan? Are, if you have an A1 type glenoid on your X-ray, are you okay go to the operating room with just an MRI? Do you think you still need a CT scan? Well, if I have a high, if the patient comes to me, let's say from their primary care physician or somebody else with a CT, or sorry, high quality x-rays and an MRI, and it's a 
it's an aglonoid, you know, we can, we, we can make an exception and not get a CT scan. But my only issue is that I, I, I do plan every case properly in the pre-op kind of planning software. So it makes me a lot more comfortable to look at preoperatively and, and plan things and understand, you know, how my components are going to fit. So it's, it's really interesting to hear the comments from, um, uh, from uh, Quinn and, um, and uh, Patrick about the MRI because that sort of uh, is a little bit kind of enlightening for me. So it's something uh, certainly to consider. All right, well, let's get into the meat of it here. Let's assume we have a patient who's a good surgical candidate. They're healthy. They fail non-operative treatment. They have osteoarthritis. They have a B2 type glenoid. Pat, tell me what are the factors here that drive your treatment algorithm in terms of arthroplasty? Are you always doing a reverse, always doing a total? What are the things you think about as you approach that decision? Well, it's it's tough, Pete. I mean, in 2021, I guess we're at now, I still use Walsh's criteria. I look at their subluxation. I look at their retroversion, specifically their neoglenoid retroversion. I really hang my hat primarily on his study several years ago, you know, over 80% humeral head subluxation, over 27 degrees of neoglenoid retroversion leading to increased chance of failure with anatomic. That said, those are based on 2D measurements. And I'm starting to be in practice long enough where I've been burned many times. And if that patient is, let's say they're 70 years old and they have 20 degrees or even 15 degrees of neoglenoid retroversion, they're right on the border of subluxation. You know, honestly, I'm moving more and more to reverse. And I think 10 years from now, I might tell you reverse for everybody. What do you think, Brendan? Do you, are you using similar numbers? Is that 27 degrees also your cutoff? How are you making this decision? Yeah, the, I think, Peter, you're referring to kind of the decision between an, an anatomic and reverse, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, what, what Pat said, certainly I agree with. I think um, one other thing, I mean, I, I think it's in, in my practice, it's difficult to distill it. And I'm sure that the other analysts would agree down to the exact number. Um, so other factors certainly come into consideration if, um, you know, if they're sort of on the borderline between an anatomic and reverse using the numbers that, that uh, Pat quoted, you know, if they've got very poor forward elevation, less than 100 degrees, if they're very stiff with external rotation, only ER, let's say that, you know, 10 degrees or so, and they're a little bit lower activity level, I'm going to be more inclined to do a reverse. However, if, you know, the opposite of true, if they have better range of motion preoperatively, and uh, they're a kind of a higher demand, higher activity level patient. I might kind of push the envelope towards a towards an anatomic. Pete, I'll follow up on that too. I mean, I would agree with what what Brennan said there about the motion. I don't know of any study that's looked at that. Maybe you guys can enlighten me. But um, I feel like if they're really stiff, it shows that their their deformity is less flexible. And so I'll use that as kind of a something to sway me one way or the other. I, um, I I totally agree with both of you. I've I've struggled a little with what with what 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 to think of really stiff. Like what does really stiff mean? I, I totally agree that 10 degrees extra rotation is not enough, but is 90 degrees of elevation enough? Is that not enough? What do you, what do you think, Pat? What is what? How would you define when you when you say really stiff? What do you mean? Yeah, for me, it's a general guideline. I think if they have extra rotation less than 30 and forward elevation less than 90, um, and and a lot of that. Part of that is due to what I interpreting as their their instability issue, how static it is versus rigid. 
or sorry, static versus, you know, flexible, but also it's also about the patient satisfaction level, right? Because we know in reverse, if somebody has really good range of motion coming in, they're less likely to be satisfied. And I kind of think, well, you know, if they're sitting at 89 degrees and I tell a patient I can take them up to say 130 and have a really good, you know, five-year result with a low chance of revision, that's a win. What do you think, Quinn? What what are the factors you use preoperatively to make your decision as to whether to do an anatomic or a reverse for a patient with a B2 glenoid? Uh, well, I, 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 there's a lot to unpack here. I think Brennan and, and Pat did a good job with, with a lot of things that I think of. I still do think I, I still bring age into the equation. I think we talked a little bit about physiologic age, but what one of the things that that I fear of. Uh, in in the anatomic in the b2 is not so much component failure i know that was jill's experience but that was also with a all cemented polyethylene uh i believe keel glenoid if i remember right and, and that's a that, that's a different implant than what we're doing today with a lot of anchor pegs and ingrowth technology which have which uh uh have some documented lower failure rates so I, I don't really fear component failure as much in the b2 i fear the subscap and i fear cuff failure so a a younger patient with a presumably better looking rotator cuff to me is a better candidate to get longevity out of an anatomic replacement, I think, that than an older person with, with a cuff at risk, if you will. Um, I, I think it, that's probably the main thing that, that, I, that I would add to this discussion. Otherwise, I agree with everything that, that's been said. And then, Quinn, do you have a number? Is there a, a cutoff beyond which you would say it's too much retroversion? I can't do an anatomic? Uh, yeah, I think I, I'm like Patrick. I, I stay with uh, Jill. Somewhere between 25 and 30 is where I think I'm really swimming upstream. And a lot of that has to do with some of the augments that are on the market. Uh, is, or you can bone graft and, you know, you can, I guess, build up as much as you want there. But bone grafting hasn't, doesn't have the, the best track record in the world for an anatomic. And then the augments usually top out somewhere around 20 degrees of correction. I, I'm, I'm not sure you're going to get a whole lot more than that without going to some sort of metal back design where, where you're where you're potentially off the reservation using one of those. So tell me yeah, about so, that. I mean, as you approach, sorry, go, go ahead, Pat. Well, I was just going to back up Quinn on augments. I mean, as he pointed out, a lot of the manufacturers, you know, about, about 25 degrees, I know one that goes up to 35. Um, but uh, when you look at Eric Ricchetti's study on this, when he looked at uh, with Joe Iannotti, they looked at the step tech with B2 glenoids, and they had a higher risk of loosening when they got above 25 degrees as well. And I think it was about seven millimeters of posterior bone loss correlated with loosening of the central peg. That was a peg designed for central ingrowth. And and if you back up the math, you end up at about if you do you know some math with geometry, that's about 25 degrees as well. So. We got a few indicators that have really put us toward that number now between those that work and Jill's work. Yeah, one of the, Peter, if I can interject um, with Please. kind of what Quinn and Pat said, one of the things when I'm planning my cases, if I'm using the pre-op planning software, if I'm getting into a situation where, at least in the model, a the, the largest wedge or the largest augment is the one that I'm going to need, I'm really hoping that that's a CT scan of an older patient and somebody who, you know, I, I would rather do a reverse in anyway because I, I'm not interested in putting a really, really large augment. I think that you run into issues um, with uh, with problems there. 
So it sounds like everyone is uh, still doing anatomics for B2s, which I'm happy to hear. Uh, I want to talk about that specifically. So when you approach, you're, you've decided you're going to do anatomic, you're approaching the operating room. I want to talk about how we manage the glenoid defect. And there's a couple of different options here. We've got eccentric reaming, augments, bone grafts, et cetera, et cetera. Quinn, tell me, tell me how, how do you take these different options and, and array them out to pathology? Well, I think I've, I've played around with all of them and then settled on augments. I, I know that I think it's Jay Keener has, has, has published on high side reaming and how that, that does pretty well. And, and, for, um, and perhaps you can accept less than, less than perfect contact with your glenoid component that, that, that while I certainly, uh, think that that's good data, it just hasn't ever set right with me. Uh, I've, I've always, for whatever reason, I've always felt like like I should try to correct the the patient to neutral. We've had pretty good luck, I think, with with correcting them to neutral either either through bone grafting or um, or augments. And we have not as yet had the problems with resubluxation that uh, I think that Jill pointed out was a problem with it, with the B two glenoids in his series. And that's certainly not me trying to say that I'm I'm better. I'm just saying that that we have had pretty good luck with uh, recorrecting uh, to 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 native version using. Uh, using metal and plastic to try and do it. And that that's, I, th I think, an advantage. I, I, at least I hope so. And, I, and I, we certainly need some longer-term studies to bear that out. What about you, Pat? Are you also an all-augment guy or are you using anything else? Well, um, I do both. Um, I try to sort of, when I look at correction, I think, okay, how much can I correct without, A, violating the vault, B, damaging the subchondral bone. Um, so when we look at the vault, we don't talk about that as much anymore because we're not doing as much corrective reaming, but most of the studies years ago showed beyond about 15 degrees, there were several of them, but beyond about 15 degrees, you start violating the vault with your pegs if you're going to try to correct that much. So that's a cutoff mm. there. And a second cutoff would be subchondral bone. And we try to preserve the subchondral bone as much as we can. I, I believe in that concept. And if you start to look at these deformities again, you'll usually find that beyond about 15 degrees, you're reaming down beyond three millimeters of bone, which is gonna start getting into the subchondral area. So both from a peg perforation standpoint and subchondral bone violation standpoint, I think 15 degrees is kind of your upper limit of corrective reaming. So for me, that augment is kind of that, that middle ground, that 15 to 25 where I don't have to do any reaming. I got a nice deformity there that I can put an augment in and, and uh, for the most part, respect what the, what the patient has. Um, and then I go above reverse once we get above the 25 number we talked about. What about you, Brendan? Is, um, are, are, are you using kind of a combination of these things? What, what, what do you use when? How are you managing that? Yeah, my basic kind of algorithm is a little bit like Pat in terms of the 15 degrees or less. I'm going to try for a high side ream um, and then sort of above that until, you know, we get into the sort of excessive retroversion. It's, it's an augment. I don't, I haven't um, had a lot of experience with uh, bone grafting. I feel like the augments are maybe a little bit more straightforward for me. So I just prefer those. Um, I've been happy with those. And then, um, you know, as uh, Quinn mentioned, you know, um, some of my experience and maybe similar to yours, uh, Peter, um, with uh, Dr. Keener was also, you know, thinking about the high side ream. And then if you get into issues, 
you know, with balancing, you know, utilizing a, you know, anterior offset head kind of a, a, a technique as well. So my basic rubric is similar to Pat's with maybe a few other um, kind of ideas sprinkled in as well. Really good conversation. And it seems like you guys are in consensus, which uh, which is nice for our listeners. Um, but let's let's move on from the bone and talk a little bit about the soft tissues. When you guys see the type B2 glenoid, when you're doing an anatomic, do you do anything different with the soft tissue? Do you do anything different with the posterior capsule or the subscap? Brennan, let's start with you. How are you managing the soft tissues anteriorly and posteriorly with your B2 glenoid during an anatomic? I don't... Um... I don't manage the posterior capsule much differently. Um, I haven't had to use any sort of posterior plication stitches or anything like that. Um, and I think maybe one of the, and for, and for the subscap as well, I, um, I, I do a lesser tuberosity osteotomy typically. Um, one of the things that I try to not do though in a B2 is I do some, I think this has more to do with the implants and how they interact with the soft tissues. Um, I like to have a, uh, a stemmed component, a short stemmed component, so that I can dial the head eccentrically if I need to, particularly with an anterior offset. If it's, you know, there's too much posterior subluxation or static posterior subluxation after the guanoid components are in and I'm trialing, I like to be able to dial my head anteriorly. And I don't know of a stemless implant yet that that allows that. Um, and uh, that's basically, I don't know if that, that in, so I, I would rather have the ability to dial the head than just kind of build up thickness um, to sort of deal with the soft tissues, I suppose. Quinn, how about you? Any different thoughts in terms of managing the posterior versus the anterior soft tissues when you're doing your anatomics? I think those are excellent points that were made. Uh, my, my fear with the posterior subluxation, as I mentioned earlier, Rachel, I think it was when you were maybe in transitions, I fear the subscap because in the B2 glenoid, that thing it gets so tight and contracted that pulling over your LTO or trying to repair a tenotomy sometimes can really be a chore. Uh, so I, I manage, I manage these with appeal, uh, and that way you can medialize your repair if you need to. I sure, sure, certainly tried not to, but ideally if you can, uh, if you can correct them and get them back to neutral version that then you can repair your, you can repair anything in, in, um, in anatomic position. It's just the patient doesn't always give that to you. So that's my fear about the front. My fear about the back, I, I don't, I think if you correct them to, to neutral version, poster instability is not that big a deal. Where I think you can get into trouble is, as we were talking about earlier, these sort of 20 to 25 degree deformities where you're getting maybe a little bit into subchondral bone and you medialize the joint line a little bit and you're trying to put in a thinner head because that's what we're doing these days. And, and then all of a sudden you're unstable that way. And you, and we always feel dirty nowadays trying to put in a thicker head. So the, if you remedially and take any, and take any of that subchondral bone, then I think you can create posterior instability, even when you've re, even when you've corrected the patient back to neutral. So I try to be very judicious with the reaming, even in, even in, um, uh, bad deformities. And Pat, how about you? Any additional thoughts on how to manage the posterior capsule in these patients? I'll double system. down and yep. I'll double down and say I I never do it. Um, it makes no sense to me. I think the reason that it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, if you think about remplissage, what we're doing with the remplissage is we're effectively tightening the posterior structures. And when you look in the lab, what that does is it pulls the head back. If you look at biomechanical studies, so to me, if we take that kind of logic, if anything, if you tighten the posterior capsule 
you're kind of pinching in the back, you're going to really pull the head posteriorly. So I think that's the reason why it doesn't work. If anything, what I do is I will do a little bit more closure on the rotator interval to try to provide the provide the opposite, pulling them anteriorly. Those are those are great points, um, Pat, and uh, so interesting. And Quinn, um, do you you mentioned you do appeal for B twos? Do you do that for most of your uh, anatomics as well? Yeah, that's for me. That's been the most utilitarian um, uh, approach, where I, I can see the cuff uh, better than I could when I used to do a tenotomy. Uh, my experience with LTOs has been fine. It's just that it wasn't any better. And it, I think we've all found at this point that trying to repair a failed LTO is just as miserable as trying to is trying to take care of a, a failed soft tissue management procedure. So I, I'm not not here to argue what's what's right or wrong. I think it's pretty clear you can do whatever you want with the subscap. That's just my thought process. I just want to say how amazed I am that we're on relatively the same page. I think that's a relatively newer thing because we've done as a field so much careful work of, to research this particular entity. Um, I wanted to move on to reverse. You know, we've, we've gone through a little bit how we manage the glenar deformity with an anatomic. Let's talk reverse. If you've decided you're gonna do a reverse, how would you prefer to manage glenar defect? Are you reaming, augmenting, more likely to bone graft? Pat, tell me in a, in, a, in a reverse, are you doing the same thing? Are you an all augment guy or are you doing anything differently? So part of this, I think, depends on what you first accept as your goals of implant placement. And so for me, I use a base plate primarily that has a central screw. And biomechanically, the studies have shown that 50% contact is acceptable. So I will typically aim for 50% or greater base plate contact and about, uh, except up to 10 degrees of retroversion, and I'll really usually respect inclination. So usually with that, I am able to just do a um, partial reaming, get some contact and lateralize with the base plate and the glenosphere. Now, if you have a lower threshold, if you want more contact, I think you start moving up the chain more toward augments. And I think you have to look at how much thickness you have of the augment in the back. And so I kind of start marching in the particular one I use, I have an option as a four and an eight, and I'll kind of plan it. I'll look at the, what I have. If I don't have enough contact that I like with acceptable parameters, then I'll start moving up to the chain to use a 10 or a 20 degree augment to get full contact. Bone graft for me is when I get higher amounts, when I get between the basically the anywhere from the eight to the 15 millimeter defect range. Or I think if I have a young patient where I cannot get, um, I feel like, uh, you know, they have a bad deformity, say they're in their fifties and I'm just gonna say, well, I can't correct this anatomically. In that patient, I really like more lateralization just because of the data showing improved internal rotation. So even though I may be able to address with an augment, I'll use a bone graft because I can get more lateralization through the bone graft and I'll feel like with them, I can accept that because they have good bone to get good fixation. What are your thoughts, Quinn? Uh, are, are you approaching things similarly? If you can get 50% support, you're okay. 
How does how does the, how does lateralization play a role here? Are you more or less likely to do that with a B two? Tell us what you think. Uh, as far as uh, augment versus bone graft, that's another thing I've played around uh, with both. I I do like the the data that's out there about the fifty percent contact with the center screw implant. I think that's good. Tom DeQuinn has some stuff that uh, shades a little bit more towards seventy five percent. But I, I I was happy for for. Uh, a long time with um, with bone grafting and fifty percent contact. So I, I think I think the there's plenty of a leg to stand on there. Um, I, I do like augments uh, to, just to increase the amount of backside contact you can get uh, with your implant. So I, I, that would be my standard at this point is an augmented base plate to try to to try to um, uh, to try to manage that deficiency. I, I think I, I reference this a lot, but I, uh, I, I lived through the era of of hip reconstruction when we would be packing cancellous chips and such behind these cavitary defects in the acetabulum. And, you know, we all have, have afternoons of our life that we're never going to get back just knowing that that wasn't going to work. You know, I mean, our hip and knee colleagues have taught us that you replace your deficiencies with metal. And so, uh, and so as such, from a conceptual standpoint, uh, uh, augments are really my preferred treatment. Uh, I tend to lateralize through the humerus with, with the exception being, a very medialized glenoid, and I know this is about the B2, but you know the the B3 glenoid that has a lot of central wear or something like that, it, which is kind of a cousin of what we're here to talk about. That can become so medialized. I think sometimes you can run into subcoracoid impingement uh, if the joint line is that medialized. So I, that that's where I will often go to a uh, lateralized glenosphere. But in general, I just lateralize the humerus. And what are your thoughts, um, Brendan? How, how are you replacing the defect? Are you just essentially reaming? Does the B2 affect your decision to or to not lateralize at the time of your No, I think, um, so I also, uh, what, what kind of, you know, what, what stem you're using is important too. If you're using more of a uh, inlay stem, you might be more inclined to get some lateralization, which you can certainly get from an augmented glenoid. So I've transitioned more to an inlay stem um, and, just to kind of lateralize on the glenoid side um, without significant lateralization on the humeral side. And um, when I do that, I find that using the augment allows me to essentially get a little more lateralization on the glenoid um, that I can get through both the through, both through the base plate as well as the glenosphere. So if I do have a significant bony defect in the setting of a B2, I typically am using um, a uh, augmented component to to address that defect or, you know, as Pat mentioned, just getting, you know, 50, somewhere between, you know, at least 50 to 75% base plate contact with a, a standard base plate if the deformity is not that severe. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the elusive B0 glenoid. Are any of you guys doing anything special in these particularly young patients, difficult to treat, don't want to be overly aggressive, but don't want to leave them miserable? What are you guys doing for them? Are you doing uh, from a surgical perspective as well as a non-surgical perspective? Let's start with Quinn. What are your thoughts on the B0? Will you define B0 for me? Yeah, kind of that pre-osteoarthritic posterior subluxation. Um, it was, I think, described in 2018 in JSCS by Walsh, uh, but adding to the adding to his original classification where he describes it as the pre-osteoarthritic posterior subluxation of the humeral head. 
Um, and so it's kind of that early form of osteoarthritis. And if you catch it, particularly in those young, often male active patients, uh, how are you treating that? Got it. Okay. These were folks we were calling B1s for a long time. <laughs> so, uh, it, the, the short answer is I, I don't do a heck of a lot. Uh, you know, if they don't, I, I don't think I have a good way to manage their posterior subluxation and, and Joe Iannotti has some really interesting stuff out there about how the, it seems that cuff dysfunction or, or, um, fatty infiltration of the posterior cuff, whatever it basically precedes the arthritis and, and may well be happening, um, uh, it may, be, may well be going on at the time of this B0 glenoid so that you get some early posterior subluxation and, and it may be just be due to basically to be due to the cuff is, is not acting right. Be, be that as it may, I don't have a good treatment for it. Brad, how about you? What are your thoughts on this particular patient population? So I, tough problem, no solution, just like Quinn said. I, I really try to, if I identify this patient myself, I try to really lower expectations and tell them, you know, I think this is a tough problem you have, and we're going to try to be as conservative as possible. Quinn alluded to that study on B-glenoids, and that was also with Eric Ricchetti. Two-year follow-up, I think it was 90% of B1-glenoids at two years progressed. So I know we're talking about B0, but it's the same idea. That's going to progress over time. It's a downhill phenomenon. And so... I try to stay out of the way of it as much as I can. What I see these patients get into trouble is when somebody has gotten an MRI that says they have a posterior labral tear. It's probably a degenerative phenomenon. And then they get a repair and they come, you know, a couple of years and they're like, hey, now what do I do? And their arthritis has progressed. So I really try to avoid getting there in the first place. Brandon, any additional thoughts on your end? No, totally agree with with what's been said, especially Pat's last comment about the sort of that's a real kind of kind of a sinking feeling in clinic when you see that patient come in who's, you know, had a repair, you know, elsewhere or whatever it is, and they've got anchors in their glenoid now and the arthritis is like Pat <clears throat> said, progressed and they're still they're still quite young and you're really uh, in a rock in a hard place there. So, you know, we try to just be be uh um, helpful with injections as they need and try to keep them out of the operating room for as long as possible. Um, well, guys, I, I, um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate all of you coming on the podcast. All of you, that was awesome. I mean, it was an awesome display of a huge range of literature and, um, just the progress we've made with this particular pathology, both in terms of our implants and in terms of our research, understanding what does and does not work. So thank you so much for spending the time to talk this through with us. So on behalf of the SES and our listeners, we really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for having us, Peter and Rachel. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Peter and Rachel, and learned a tremendous amount as well from uh, Quinn and Pat. I'd like to echo Pete. That was for me just to kind of listen and hear and hear so much consensus. Um, it is amazing what has evolved over the last couple of decades. And I think our listeners are going to get a ton out of this. So thank you guys all so much. And at this point, that's really all the time we have for this podcast. Again, we want to thank all three of our guests. And on behalf of ASCS and for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. 
And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.